don't know what to do. What do you mean? Like, what do we say? I don't know. Introduce yourself. You introduce yourself. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to our podcast, True Crimes and Storytimes. I'm Michelle, and obviously, there is no Kirsten today, because there is no smart-alecky remark at the beginning, or messing up of the intro, like she always does. Um, Kirsten is pretty sick. Her whole family has basically come down with the flu, her husband, her kids. So, obviously, she does not want to come over to my house and spread it to me. Um, we did not want to skip a second week of the podcast after already skipping for Christmas and all that, so here I am recording by myself, and I hope you guys don't mind that Kirsten will not be here today. Obviously, you will mind because, I mean, duh, she's half of the podcast and my best friend, and it's so weird sitting here by myself, but, um, shout out to you, Kirsten. I miss you. This is very devastating for me. Um, But today, she wanted to cover the Toolbox Killers. um, And I'm going to read that to you guys today. She did the research, so give her the credit for that. Um, But I will be in her place today, reading it. And if you didn't already know, our story time will be up by the time this is released. So go check out my story time. It's about the Silent Twins. Interesting, actually. Um, If you haven't already, leave us a rating, a review, something or other, you know, that'd be nice. And um, check out our socials. The link tree will be in the show notes. We do have our Patreon up now. So if you want to go check that out, it'll also be in the link tree. We started fresh and clean. It's brand new. Um, We are starting early releases for our episodes on Sundays. And there's some other cool things to check out on there. So if you want to go do that, please. But let's just jump into the case. Um, obviously, we're covering the, tool, the toolbox killers today. Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris. So let's just jump right in. Lawrence Bittaker was born on September 27, 1940 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His parents never wanted children. So when Lawrence was born, they placed him in an orphanage. Sad. He did end up getting adopted, and Lawrence was forced to move around a lot with his family due to his adoptive father's job, so he didn't have a stable home. He's moving around place to place, can't really make any friends because he's not living there for very long. At the age of 12, Lawrence had his first run-in with the law when he was arrested for shoplifting. He continued to get arrested for theft over the course of the next four years. He said the reason he was committing these petty crimes was because he wasn't getting enough love and attention from his parents. In 1957, Lawrence and his family were living in California. He was 17 at this time and was in high school, but he decided to drop out of high school despite having a very high IQ. And we all know high school doesn't necessarily measure your smarts, so I can kind of understand where he's coming from on that front, but 
in America, you do have to get a degree to have a lot of jobs. Or, not a degree, but your high school diploma to get jobs here. So, yeah. I can understand why it would be boring for him, but could have went through with it. Within a year of dropping out of high school, he was arrested for car th- car left. Kirsten, car left? Car theft, hit and run, and evading arrest. He was held at the California Youth Authority, where he stayed until he was 18 years old. Now, that sounds a little familiar, right? The California Youth Authority. If you remember, Kirsten previously did an episode on another serial killer, Edmund Kemper. He was also held at the California Youth Authority for murdering his grandparents when he was 15 years old. And if you haven't listened to that episode, go check it out. It's really good. It was the same time that Lawrence was held there as when Edmund Kemper was held there. Weird coincidence. So when Lawrence was released from the California Youth Authority, he went to find his parents only to find out that they had disowned him and moved states, and he never saw his adoptive parents again. Within days of his parole from the California Youth Authority, Lawrence was arrested again for taking a stolen vehicle across state lines. He was sentenced to 18 months in the Oklahoma State Reformatory, and he was released from prison in 1960, but within months, he was arrested again for robbery. In May of 1961, he was sentenced to 15 years imprisonment for the robbery, but after serving only three years, Lawrence was released. And in 1964, he was arrested again, Kirsten put surprise, surprise, for parole violation. But a year later, he was arrest- oh, released again. He was arrested a few more times over the next few years, and each time he served a short sentence and was released. We know how that goes, don't we? In 1974, he was arrested for assault with attempt to commit murder. He was shopping, and an employee saw him steal a steak. The employee followed Lawrence outside and asked him if he forgot to pay for the steak, and Lawrence stabbed him in the chest. Weird flex, but okay. Like, you could have just gave the steak back at that point. He tried to run, but two other employees restrained him until police could arrive. The employee did survive, and Lawrence was charged with the lesser charge of assault with a deadly weapon. He was sent to California Men's Colony in St. Louis Obispo. Alright, now we're moving on to some background of Roy Norris. Roy was born on February 5th of 1948 in Greenlee, Colorado. Roy was conceived out of wedlock, so his parents decided to get married since having a baby out of wedlock at this time was frowned upon. His father worked in a scrapyard, and his mother was a housewife, but she was addicted to drugs. I feel like a lot of the housewives in the 1950s were definitely addicted to drugs. Anyways, he grew up living with his parents, but he was placed in the foster care system repeatedly throughout his life. His parents were verbally abusive towards him, and when he was placed in foster homes, the foster families didn't always treat him the best either. When he was 16, Roy and his family went to visit this woman, who was in her 20s, and Roy began talking to her in a sexual way, making sexual comments to her and making her very uncomfortable. She told Roy to leave her house and also told his father about what Roy had said and Roy's father threatened him. Roy then stole his father's car and drove up into the Rocky Mountains where he attempted to commit suicide by injecting air into one of his arteries. His attempt failed and he was found by police and taken in as a runaway since he was only 16. When he returned to his parents, they told him 
and his sister were unwanted children and they planned to get a divorce once they were 18. And a year later, Roy dropped out of school and joined the Navy. He was stationed in San Diego in 1965 and was deployed to Vietnam in 1969. He started doing heroin when he was in Vietnam and ended up getting an honorable discharge after one tour. In November of 1969, Roy was arrested for his first known sexual offense. He was charged with rape and assault with attempt to commit rape. He was eventually released. In February of 1970, Roy attempted to trick a woman into letting him into her home, and when she refused, he tried to break into her house anyways. The woman called the police, and Roy was obviously arrested. In May of 1970, Roy was out on bail when he attacked a woman he had been stalking at the San Diego State University campus. Roy hit her multiple times in the back of her head with a rock before she fell to her knees, and he continued to beat her head against the sidewalk. Roy was charged with assault with a deadly weapon for this incident, and he served five years in prison. The fuck? Five years for that? So he was released in 1975 with five years probation, and doctors said he was no further danger to others. And here's a quote from Kirsten. How? I would like to know what tests they did on this man to determine that. Three months after he was released, he offered a woman a ride on his motorcycle, and when she declined, Roy parked his motorcycle, grabbed the woman's scarf, and twisted it around her neck. Three months. Trigger warning right here. Trigger warning, so if you don't want to hear this, skip ahead. He then dragged her to a bush where he proceeded to rape her. The woman did report the rape, but Roy was long gone by the time police were looking for him. A month after the incident, the victim saw Roy's motorcycle and gave the license plate number to police, and they arrested him. A year after the incident occurred, he was convicted and sent to the California men's colony in St. Louis Obispo. Do you see where this is going yet? Can you guess who he met there? That's, that's a quote from Kirsten. While he was in the California men's colony, Roy met and became friends with none other than Lawrence Bittaker. Lawrence said they didn't become close friends until Roy taught him how to make jewelry. And then, Roy said they became even more close when Lawrence saved him from being attacked by other inmates more than once. So they started talking more and telling each other their deepest, darkest secrets, as friends do, me and Kirsten would know. Roy told Lawrence that he loved seeing the terrified faces of women and that it turned him on. Just, that's for me. He said that this was the reason he had such a long sexual assault record, but at this time, he hadn't been arrested that many times for sexual assault. So it's suggested that he had done more sexual assault on more occasions and they weren't reported. Lawrence's reply was that if he ever raped a woman, he would kill her to make sure he got rid of any witnesses. They had this sick plan that once they were freed, they were going to murder teenagers of every age. So from ages 13 to 19. Lawrence was released in October of 1978 and went back to Los Angeles where he got a job as a mechanic making $1,000 a week. That was a lot for back then. He earned a very good reputation with his neighbors and co-workers and he did a lot of public service and donated to charities. Three months after Lawrence was released, in January of 1979, Roy was released and moved back into his mother's home in Redondo Beach and got a job as an electrician. Roy received a note from Lawrence and they met back up in late February of 1979. 
So Lawrence suggested they buy a van in order to go through with these murders. He said the van needed a sliding door in the back so they could pull up to the girls real close and not have to open the doors all the way. They purchased a silver 1977 GMC cargo van that they called Murder Mac. It had no back windows and it was the typical creeper van style. Everybody knows. I don't even need to explain it. They built a bed in the back of the van and kept a toolbox underneath the bed. They also put a cooler in the van that they filled up with beer and other drinks. So not long after they bought the van did they start their plan. That rhymed unintentionally. One night around 8 p.m. they were driving along the highway when they spotted 16-year-old Lucinda or Cindy Schaefer. She was walking home from a church meeting in Redondo Beach. So they pull up next to her and ask her if she wants a ride and she says no. They offered her beer and marijuana to try and talk to her, talk her into getting into the van and she still declined. They were obviously pissed because she didn't want to get in the van, so they drove up a ways in the direction she was walking, pulled into a driveway where they waited for her to pass, and when she got up to where they were parked, Roy got out, opened the side door, and grabbed Lucinda and dragged her into the van. They turned the volume on the radio up so no one could hear her screaming. Roy tied Lucinda up with duct tape and gags while Lawrence drives up into San Gabriel Mountains. It is said that when Lucinda was first grabbed, she was screaming and fighting back, but she quickly regained her composure and stayed as calm as she could, knowing what was most likely about to happen. Trigger warning right here. We're about to talk about rape and assault and a killing, so if you don't want to hear this part, I suggest skipping ahead, because this whole case is just rough in general. So if you just don't want to hear it, I suggest going back to my case on Wednesday if you haven't already listened to it, or go check out a different true crime episode or even a different story time. But this one is really rough, so I'm about to get into the nitty gritty of it. I warned you. Once they got to the top of this road, Roy was the first to assault Lucinda by rape while Lawrence took a walk and then when he got back, Roy left so Lawrence could also rape her. After they were finished, they started arguing about whether or not to kill her. Roy tried to strangle Lucinda first, but he said the look on her face when he was strangling her made him physically sick, so he had to run to the front of the van and throw up. That's when Lawrence took over and strangled her before twisting a wire coat hanger around her neck, wrapping her body in a shower curtain, and then they both threw her body over the mountain's edge. Two weeks later, they came across 18-year-old Andrea Joy Hall. They were driving along the highway and saw her walking, so they planned to pull over and offer her a ride, but the car in front of them beat them to it, and she had accepted the ride from them. They were pissed, so they decided to follow the car until Andrea got out of the car in Redondo Beach. They pulled up to her and offered a beer or a soda, and she accepted, and when she opened up the back of the van, Roy attacked her. At first, she was able to fight back, but Roy twisted her arm behind her back, making her scream in pain. Roy bound and gagged her with tape and drove her up to the same location that they took Lucinda. When they got up to the location, Lawrence raped her twice and Roy raped her once. Lawrence then forced her to walk uphill naked and then perform oral sex on him before making her pose while he took several Polaroid pictures of her. Roy walked up to a nearby gas station to get alcohol and when he came back, Lawrence was alone and had already got rid of Andrea's body.
Lawrence told Roy that he told Andrea to basically beg and plead for her life, and then he stuck an ice pick through both of her ears to her brain and then strangled her and threw her body off the cliff. And on September 3rd, they see two more girls, Jackie Gilliam and Jacqueline Lamp. They were waiting at a bus stop near Hermosa Beach when Lawrence and Roy offered them a ride and they accepted. Once they were in the van, they offered them marijuana, which they also accepted. The girls noticed that Lawrence started driving off of the Pacific Coast Highway toward the San Gabriel Mountain. Jacqueline, who was only 13 years old, realized that something was off and attempted to open the sliding door, but Roy hit her in the back of the head with a bag full of weights and knocked her unconscious. Jackie, who is 15 years old, starts freaking out and tries to get out of the van, but Roy tackles her and starts to bind and gag her. While he is doing so, Jacqueline regains consciousness and attempts to exit the van again and she does not get a couple steps out. Oh, she does get a couple steps out, but Roy is too quick for her and he grabs her and drags her back to the van. Lawrence stops the van, punches Jacqueline in the face, and helps in binding and gagging the girls. They take them to the same spot in San Gabriel Mountains that they took to the previous victims and actually stayed there for two days. In these days, they took turns assaulting, beating, and raping Jackie and Jacqueline. They actually slept in the van next to the victims. Fucking sick, dude. Not cool sick, disgusting sick. Lawrence took Jacqueline up to a nearby hill and forced her to pose so he could take Polaroids of her. He also told Roy to take pictures of himself and Jackie because all of the previous photos were of Lawrence, so he wanted to make sure that if they ever got caught, there was evidence of Roy there as well. Lawrence also made a tape recording of him raping Jackie. After two days of being held at this mountain, both girls were murdered. Jackie was stabbed in both ears with an ice pick and strangled and Jacqueline was struck on the back of her head with a sledgehammer. Lawrence strangled her until he thought she was dead. She opened her eyes and Roy got freaked out, so he took the sledgehammer and beat her and then strangled her to death. Their bodies were also thrown over the hills of the San Gabriel Mountain. On October 31st, 1979, Roy and Lawrence abducted their final victim, Shirley Lynette Ledford. She was hitchhiking home from a Halloween party and accepted a ride home from Lawrence and Roy because she recognized Lawrence from her working as a waitress at a restaurant he went to a lot. Roy offered her marijuana, to which she declined. Lawrence pulled the van over and Roy pulled a knife on Shirley and bound and gagged her. Then Roy took over driving and just kind of drove around, not really going a specific route. Lawrence then put his tape recorder and began tormenting Shirley, slapping her, punching her, screaming at her face, mocking her when she would cry, yelling at her to say something over and over again. You can hear Shirley screaming in the background. Lawrence then takes a pair of pliers from his toolbox and proceeds to rape and sodomize her with the pliers. And you can hear everything on the tape recording. Lawrence later said that the tape recording proved nothing except for a threesome and that she was begging them to kill her by the end and that's why they killed her. Kirsten said, what, in all caps. I agree with that. Roy grabs a sledgehammer and hits Shirley with it 25 times. He then strangled her with a wire coat hanger, killing her. Lawrence had this big idea to discard of Shirley's body on someone's front lawn so they could see the reaction from the press, because at this point, the previous victim's bodies had not been found. 
So they're starting... Lawrence is definitely starting to escalate, and Roy is as well, because he's involving himself in the murders now, when at first he couldn't. But Lawrence wants recognition from the press. He has to get involved. He has to have some recognition. And this is where they fucked up, which is a good thing. So they picked a random house and left Shirley's deceased body on the front lawn, and she was found the next morning by a jogger. Roy had been reacquainted with a fellow inmate from when he was incarcerated named Jackson. He told Jackson about what him and Lawrence had been doing for the last five months and told him very detailed descriptions of the incident. Roy also told them that there had been three occasions where the girls either fought them off and got away or they were raped and let go. Jackson went to his attorney and was like, what do I do with this information? Him and his attorney agreed to go to the LAPD. The incident Roy told Jackson about where the woman was raped and let go was actually reported. What happened was on September 30th, a woman named Robin was sprayed in the face with mace before being dragged into a van and being raped by two white men in their mid-30s, and then she was let go. So LAPD start thinking that if they can get Robin to give them a positive ID on Roy and Lawrence, they could have a lead. So they seek her out, and she was able to pick them out of a group of mugshots and identify them. The LAPD then put Roy under surveillance to try and catch him. They witness him dealing drugs, and he is arrested by Hermosa Beach Police on November 20th, 1979. Lawrence was staying at a nearby motel at the time and was found and arrested for the rape of Robin. Robin was unable to identify them in person because they looked different, so they were unable to arrest him for the rape, but they were able to arrest him for violating their parole. When they searched Lawrence's hotel room, they found drugs, and they also found the Polaroid picture that he had taken of Andrea and Jackie and various acids that he was planning to use on their next victim. So they had a reason to search the van at this point, and when they searched it, they found all the tools used in the murders and also two necklaces that belonged to two of the victims, so they were also taking trophies. The victims had been reported missing at this time, so they were already looking pretty suspicious. Well, the police also found the tape recordings, They actually played the recording of Shirley's rape to her mom so she could identify her daughter's voice. Sick. Absolutely sickening. In Roy's apartment, they found a bracelet that belonged to Shirley. And they found almost 500 500 photos of teenage women between Lawrence's room and Roy's apartment. At first, Roy tried to deny any involvement in anything, but when investigators showed him all the evidence they found... He confessed to everything, but he tried to put all of the blame on Lawrence. Police found 19 women that were in the photos that were found in Roy's and Lawrence's home that were missing and not found. That's 19. 19 missing teenagers that neither Roy or Lawrence confessed to having any involvement in. They searched the areas where they disposed of the bodies, but Andrea and Lucinda were never found. On February 9th, 1980, Jackie and Jacqueline's bodies were found at the bottom of a canyon right where Roy said, and the ice pick was still lodged in Jackie's skull. In February of 1980, Lawrence and Roy were charged with the murder of five girls. Lawrence was held without bail, but Roy was held with a $10,000 bail. And Kirsten said, but why though? <laughs> Literally same, yeah. Roy agreed to testify against Lawrence so long as the prosecution wouldn't give him the death penalty. 
Roy pleaded guilty to four counts of first-degree murder, one count of second-degree murder, two counts of rape, and one count of robbery. In May of 1980, Roy Norris was sentenced to 45 years to prison, to life in prison. April 24th of 1980, Lawrence had a total of 29 charges against him, including torture, murder, rape, sodomy, criminal, criminal conspiracy, and possession of a firearm. And he wasn't saying anything through all of this. When Lawrence was asked how he wanted to plead, he didn't respond, so the judge entered a plea of not guilty for him. Lawrence's trial took place in January of 1981 with Roy as a witness. Roy told them everything in detail, and they actually played the 17-minute audio recording of Shirley's torture and rape in court for everyone to hear what they did. Many people walked out because of how horrific the audio was, obviously. And Lawrence was sitting there smiling and laughing while they played the recording. Kirsten put, sick fuck. Yeah, because he's replaying everything that happened in his mind. Like, he's literally getting off on listening to the 17-minute audio. Like, that's why he recorded it in the first place, so he could go back and listen to it. And then they play it in the courtroom for him to hear again. After three days of deliberation on February 19, 1981, the jury found Lawrence guilty of five counts of first-degree murder, one count of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, five charges of kidnapping, nine charges of rape, one charge of sodomy, and three charges of unlawful possession of a firearm. Lawrence was sentenced to death for five counts of first-degree murder. He showed no emotion when he was given the decision. He appealed the decision, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court stayed with the verdict of the death penalty. Good and he was to be put to death in July of 1991, but he appealed it once again and was granted a stay of execution. Excuse me. During his time on death row, he did several interviews, and he obviously loved the attention. He was the one that came up with the idea to put the girl on the lawn so everybody could see, and that's how they got caught. He never showed any remorse for his crimes and said the only remorse he felt was the fact that him and Roy got caught and it ruined his life. Lawrence Bittaker did, however, die in prison on December 13, 2019, while awaiting execution, and Roy Norris also died in prison on February 24th of 2020. Rest in turmoil, bitches, because I hope you're burning in hell right now. I really do. Um, this case is obviously very tragic. There's probably more murders than what they got convicted for. Um, being only convicted for five, even though there was several girls missing and they had pictures of other women and teenage, I mean, teenage girls that were missing. So obviously they definitely committed more and they escalated fairly quickly. Lawrence and Roy are both sick as hell. Um, obviously disgusting, very tragic for these girls and I hope they're all resting in peace and have moved on and can rest peacefully um anywho that's all for the toolbox killers sorry kirsten wasn't here to put in her two cents and read her own research but um she will be back next week so let's um just hope and pray that they get better i think they might have had the flu or something so anyways go check out our socials link in the link tree in the show notes. Um, all the links to the research will obviously also be in the show notes. 
go check out our Patreon that we just put up. Um, it has a Discord server. We're going to have early release episodes. You can check out our show schedule um, for 2023, what we're going to be doing next, if you want to check that out. Or you can even just support the pod and get a shout out on the episodes. So please, if you would like, go check it out. There's some cool stuff on there. And leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We really appreciate it. Thank you all for listening. And um, let's start this new year off strong. So thank you. Bye.